Hi, I'm Dr. Janice Morrow. Thanks for joining us for another episode of American Mood Swings, where we talk about the brain and all things related to mental health. Welcome. Well, all right. Thanks, everybody, for joining us for another episode of American Mood Swings. I'm Janice Morrow, uh, Dr. Morrow, and today's guest is Joe Smorrow, uh, a former Marine and retired police officer from the San Antonio Police Department who worked in the mental health crisis unit for about 11 years. And um, we're just excited to talk to him today. He has a consulting company to uh, now uh, to help police departments and first responders around the, uh, the country. Um, there's been a lot of very high profile um, police interactions with mentally ill people. And, um, you know, when we see this on the news, we only see one side. So we're really grateful that Joe's going to be here today. And uh, we welcome his perspective from a former, from a retired police officer and uh, how the San Antonio model has become like a model for the entire United States to be copied and emulated. So thank you. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, Dr. Morrow. I'm super excited to be here with you. Well, the, what started some national out, outcry was that the whole George Floyd thing a few years ago. Now, I don't believe he was mentally ill. But, um, so that's but but of course that started that was the first time I started seeing protests around the country to defund the police and then people would try to explain, no we just want money redirected for crisis response training. So let's hear things from your perspective how things have evolved and what led to your consulting company and your well just really like your a little bit about about your background and then your experience uh, for eleven years. Um, dealing with the mobile crisis response team. Yeah, so I uh, I was with the San Antonio Police Department for 15 years total, but the last 11 were on the mental health unit. And after I had a couple years on the police department working in patrol, I went through a 40-hour crisis intervention training, which to me was the most realistic and relevant training that I had received as a police officer. Um, a lot of issues within police training academies around the nation are that we spend too much time, or maybe that's not true. Maybe it's not that we don't spend too much time on the tactical side of policing. It is true that we don't spend enough time on the human side of policing. And the reality is, is that most police officers spend most of their time interacting with people just having a bad moment within their day. And yet the skills that we are equipped with don't always match up with the reality of our communities and it creates a massive disparity. Um, when I went through that 40 hour training, I was like, wow, this really feels like what I wanted to do as a cop, like this is actually helping people. So then when the mental health unit started as a pilot program and it actually became a unit is when I got on and I loved it. I never wanted to leave. I thought I was gonna spend the rest of my career there as I did. Uh, Janice, when you introduced me, you said I retired as a police officer, but I happily resigned. Uh, I only made it 15 years, and so we don't um, we don't get to retire until we have 20 years in. And so I only made it 15, but that was enough for me. I started my company in 2017. I realized there was a massive gap throughout the United States in officers receiving the 40-hour basic CIT training. And because of what San Antonio was doing, working very closely with their community stakeholder groups. We had a really good collaborative approach to the way we were addressing the problem of mental health and substance use throughout our community. There were a lot of people from around the country that would come down to our city and do tours. 
well, I would always go to these tours and represent the police department. And I had heard probably for two years consistently something to the effect of, Joe, you should start your own consulting business. You speak very passionately about this. You understand the nuances. You see the problems and you should start a company. And I was like, no, never going to happen. I'm just kind of a knuckle dragging cop. That's scary. I don't know anything about business. And finally, um, great. Thanks to some great programs that they have for military veterans, um, the University of Syracuse or Syracuse University, uh, they have a program called IVMF, which is the Institute for Veterans and Military Families. And from there, they have a group called EBV, which is the Entrepreneurial Boot Camp for Veterans. And I went to Texas A&M, free of charge, basically helps you start a business. You, I tell people you get a condensed MBA in about 39 days. Wow. So I left that program. I was on fire. I started the company in January of 2017. It really was just a side hustle. Uh, I thought I was going to be a cop for at least another 15 years. Uh, but then a series of events happened. Uh, I no longer became a fan of a lot that was happening within the police department, the direction it was going, the leadership. I had a lot of issues, but I'm in therapy. And uh, my therapist said to me one day, she said, Joe, how long are you going to show up to these sessions and just complain about work? And I was like, forever. And she was <laughs> like, yeah, that's probably not a good idea. We should look at changing your scenery. And I was terrified. I really was scared. But in 2020, actually, it was after the killing of George Floyd, which still years later is a terrible, tragic situation. Um, but when you have COVID that's shutting the world down, uh, the killing of George Floyd happening, kind of increasing a lot of uh, protest and the whole defund movement, uh, it created a lot of chaos. And because of many factors, uh, we suddenly got very busy uh, in the company side of things. And uh, so I was faced with a hard challenge, which was I can not pursue this business that I've created and stay a police officer, or I can walk away from my job as a cop and pursue the business full time. And I chose the latter. I was scared, but it's been the, probably the greatest professional decision I've ever made, uh, leaving in September of 2020. And now, uh, three years later, things are incredible. It's like a fully fledged company with people working all over the country and things are going really, really well. Wow. I, I'm, this is amazing. Um, let's, if you, if you could, I, some of the interviews I heard you, you talked about how the police have basically become the de facto responders to all of societal failures and things like things that they are called for, which I never realized, like if parents or can't get their kids to go to school and just everything. Right. Yeah, it's it's an interesting phenomenon that people don't realize how much police are called on to deal with. And, and again, no fault of their own, but if you don't call on the police, you don't realize what's happening. But as a police officer and even on the mental health unit, but also I would work a lot of extra uh, overtime doing patrol shifts, in a lot of the calls, you show up scratching your head like, why, like, in what world did you think it was a good idea to call the police for this? Like, it, there's no crime committed. It was just like, I had an argument with my spouse. Call the cops. Oh my my child won't get up when I ask him to get up. Call the cops. My kid's refusing to go to school. Call the cops. And the problem with this is that not only do pe people call the police, they have a very 
specific expectation that the police are going to show up and do exactly what they want them to do. And my, my issue that I have is I always tell people this story. If, if there's an issue in the community, like out in public, let's take mental health, for example, if there is a person that is symptomatic of their mental illness in the intersection of a roadway and nobody in the community is willing to go talk to that person and address them, someone calls the cops. Now, if this police officer that shows up to the situation has never been trained, why should we expect that they're any more qualified than you are to deal with that situation? And the moment that police officer who has an obligation now to resolve it, whatever that means, does not understand that maybe this person is floridly psychotic, maybe they're responding to internal external stimuli, maybe they're off their medication, maybe, maybe they're suffering from a co-occurring disorder. Let's say, for example, they have schizoaffective disorder and they're non-medication compliant. A police officer who has never been through CIT training has no idea what the heck that means. So then they show up and they just tell the person, hey, get out of the roadway. Of course, the person's not gonna respond because they don't even know where they are in the world. They're so detached from reality. So now the officer's like, uh oh, they're not obeying my commands. So now I'm gonna either get louder or close ground and get closer. So as I get louder or get closer, that increases the paranoia of the person who is sick. And then because maybe they pull away or they start to move, I might close on them faster. And then I go to put hands on them to try to control them. They pull away. Now we have a use of force situation happening. And then we have a community member that's upset thinking, oh my goodness, why is the cop using force on this person? And my rebuttal to that has always been, oh my goodness, why did you call the police in the first place? Like if you if you had your mind made up of what you think should happen, then why didn't you go do it? Why didn't you go and interact with the person in crisis? And the reality is, is that it's not just cops, but community members also lack training when it comes to interacting with people in crises. And so one of the things I'm super proud about is our company is not a CIT training company that just teaches law enforcement. We have a myriad of different deliverables that we offer now where we train social workers, clinicians, hospitals, schools, grocery stores, uh, corporate clients. We're training people how to better understand what's happening with people when they go into crisis. And then we're giving them both the confidence and the competence to have the skills to successfully intervene and de-escalate a situation so that they don't have to rely on law enforcement to show up and maybe get it right or maybe get it wrong. Well, let's go into uh, all these different things that are involved in the training uh, for all these different people that, and groups. That I, I didn't realize it was so expansive, which is great because, you know, like you said, they're mentally ill people are, we see them, we have interactions everywhere. But I did want to um, ask you, it, it sounded like I, I did watch that there was an HBO documentary with you and your former partner or Ern, called Ernie and Joe Crisis Cops. I watched that last night. And then um, it looked like uh, that it, it looked like this is kind of a newer thing that the most crisis that most police departments around the country do not require police uh, crisis response training, that it's voluntary. So I'd like to know if that's still the situation or if it's changed. And then let's go into uh, all the different things that you do. Yeah, so the crisis intervention training is still very much uh, voluntary. Uh, there are a lot of police agencies that still do not have it. You know, people don't realize that the average police agency size in America is only about 10 cops. And because of that, it's very hard for them to 
uh, get the higher level or required training, especially a 40-hour training, because their agency is so small. When we think of law enforcement agencies, we tend to think of the big cities of NYPD and Chicago and LAPD, and where they have thousands and thousands of officers, but that's not the majority of America. The average police agency in America is about 10 officers. So we must first remember that. That's shocking. Like <laughs> it, it is for a lot of people, right? And uh, and people don't realize this. Now, be, because of that, the, the group CIT International is a 501c3 nonprofit that is kind of the uh, linchpin of CIT for a lot of police agencies to go to. Uh, it's like a, you know, a, a resource factory of all information that they help people with and get them set up and started. But the issue that I have is that they believe that CIT should not be mandatory, that it's only for a certain type of officer that wants to do it. And we've never seen eye to eye on this. I've come out very publicly and, and mentioned this. And here's my reason why. If you're going to allow CIT training to be voluntary, then you should also allow officers to pick and choose what calls they respond to in the community. <laughs> and that's not a reality of any police agency that I know of. For example, if I was a cop and a dispatcher called my number and said, hey, I need you to make this address. And I said, what is it for? And she says, well, there's a, uh, there's a family member uh, calling the police because there's um, a brother or a wife or a husband or a father who has a bipolar disorder. They're off their medications and they appear to be manic. And I could say, nah, no thanks. I don't want that call. Give me something else. Then fine. CIT can be voluntary. But no officer has the luxury to pick and choose their calls. So why do we have the luxury to pick and choose how equipped we're going to be to handle the calls? Now, I don't want to split hairs here or get into it, but the reality is, is that uh, they also don't support CIT training being a part of your initial training in the police academy. It's part of why um, That's crazy. You know, there's some groups out there that aren't supportive of Ernie and Joe Crisis Cops, the documentary, because in there, it shows us providing CIT training to our cadets. But what they also don't realize is that that's not just a check the box. What San Antonio does really, really well, better than any police agency I've ever seen, and I've met a lot of people from a lot of different agencies, is our state has requirements, but then San Antonio says we're going to double whatever the requirements are. So, for example, in San Antonio, every cadet is going to get 40 hours of CIT. Then after they have two years on, then they can go through another 40 hours CIT training in person. And then, because in Texas, you have basic, intermediate, advanced, and master peace officer licenses, to level up from intermediate to advanced or advanced to masters, you have to go through another 40-hour CIT training, which was the Sandra Bland uh, Act that started that one. And so essentially, an SAPD officer is sitting through 120 hours of a version of CIT or mental health training. Now, why you wouldn't support that, I have no idea. Why you would say that's a bad idea, I have no idea. I would venture to say that the cops in San Antonio have a lot more mental health training than a lot of other agencies. Now, here's the issue. Does it guarantee that if an officer goes through 40 hours of CIT training that they're never going to have a negative reaction to a community member that has a mental health issue? Of course not. Uh, we have publicly had situations and issues here in San Antonio where uh, just recently in the last few months, officers shot and killed a woman who was having a mental health crisis and uh, they all were fired and charged for it. 
And so I get the idea that's, that says, well, they all have CIT training. Why would this happen? Because we're still dealing with human beings and human behavior is always going to be flawed. No one's ever going to be perfect and do everything right. But to just say that you shouldn't go through CIT training unless you want to, I think is really short-sighted. And I'll, I'll give you this one last example, uh, Janice, before we move on is when San Antonio mandated CIT training, there were a lot of officers that pushed back against it, resisted it heavily. Like, I hate this. I do not want to do this. And they would show up the first day on Monday morning angry. Uh, things like, I would have rather retired than come to this training. I do not believe in this. I don't want to be here. And then by Friday, because our training was really solid and it was officer-led, community-supported, and we had a collaborative approach to even how we did our training, by Friday, they became our biggest advocates. They became our biggest proponents. They were saying things like, I wish I did this 25 years ago. I had no idea I was going to learn this much in CIT. But there's so much fear. There's so much fear surrounding the idea of teaching officers to better understand mental health. And we realized one of two things, either A, they were frustrated and afraid of the training because they didn't know what it was going to mean. And they thought maybe we were just going to tell them how they were the problem. Or B, a lot of the times we realized these people had family members that have been impacted by mental illness and the system somewhere along the way had failed them. And so then they were very frustrated and they didn't want anything to do with it. We were hitting too close to home, if you will. And they would open up and share some incredible testimony. Um, but we kind of reinstored that faith in them, kind of reintroduced hope for the first time in a long time. If we had left it voluntary, those officers would have never had that transformation. And so, again, I'm a huge advocate for mandatory uh, CIT training for all people. And I'm very aware that CIT is more than just training. A lot of people get hung up on the semantics of that. Like it's not... The T is not training, it's team. And the team approach is about collaboration and the mental health community and the stakeholder groups and the treatment providers and the courts and everyone. I get it. But the reality is, is every officer should have a basic 40 hours of crisis intervention team training. And then if you're going to have specialty units, mental health units, co-responder teams, they should get more training than that. Well, thank you. Um... Yeah. I, if I read this right or, or saw it, it looked like that you had never had to use force in your Correct. entire time. So I think that that's a testimony to the mental health training and the crisis, because I live in Los Angeles and I don't know if they have this program out here, but I know that there's almost what seems to be like weekly or monthly officer involved shootings, but we have a lot of homeless and mentally ill people here. And if this training sounds like I'm I mean, it's just gut-wrenching to see people die, the end result. So let's talk about um, the, all the different things that, that you do. Once you're brought in, what does this entail? So now you're you're started, uh, these police officers or first responders are here. What is What does the 40 hours entail? Yeah, so uh, there, here's the other issue with the 40-hour training is that there are so many different versions and variations out there that nothing is really the same anywhere. Now, again, CIT International has done a great job of trying to address this and mitigate that, but there are so many cities and agencies, departments that have created their own programs, created their own training. For example, San Antonio got their training from Houston because they were the, the first major city in Texas to get CIT training back in like 2002. And so we got our training from them. And then even then though, we changed it to make it our own. And this is going to happen now as a company, even when we provide CIT training to certain agencies, 
they will then take it after we've certified them and then they'll start doing their own thing. And the problem is I'll look at that program not even a year later and it's almost unrecognizable uh, because of, you know, some person comes in that doesn't have a great understanding, but they have uh, influence because they're a leader or they have rank and they'll start changing things around, things that don't make sense. Like when you have a system that works and it's functional and it operates and it's got incredible success and it has incredible transformation components in it uh, where people are having these, it's what I tell people as a company, Solution Point Plus does not provide training, we provide experiences. And the reason for that is because of the countless times people have come in resistant and then they leave inspired. The countless times people have come in unsure and then they'll tell us by the end of the week that we truly saved their life as they're in tears. Now, again, people think, well, CIT training is preparing cops to deal with the community. But every single training we provide at my company is introspection led first. It starts with knowing who you are, owning your own trauma, realizing who you are as an individual. And our largest client is the Federal Bureau of Prisons. And we go into this very rigid, hard-nosed industry, and we're teaching these correctional workers that, hey, you bring a lot of your own traumas and problems into this facility, and then you're given the ultimate power and authority over people. If you start posturing and thinking that you're going to like own or dominate or force people to do things, you're setting yourself up for failure. And so we talk a lot about this paradoxical shift between power and authority and how the less power we actually portray having, the easier it is to gain compliance and control uh, versus the traditional mindset of many officers is to come in very loud, aggressive stance, aggressive tone, barking orders, thinking that that's going to lead to favorable outcomes when really all it does is it increases more frustration, separation, agitation, and the like. And so a 40-hour training, though I'll give you hours, what we do at Solution Point Plus. So uh, our team, what we call our facilitators, we've they've all been trained, embedded, and certified by us uh, in our material. Now, they can use their own anecdotes. They can use a lot of their own stories and experiences, but each class has its own theme. The flow of the class is always going to be the same. Uh, we're never going to deviate away from it. So Monday is just us. We're teaching, that is the core tenets of de-escalation. We're teaching you the actual skills. It goes from crisis ID, crisis identification, to effective communication, active listening, to crisis response, which is like the how-to. Uh, and I'm sorry, the very first class is YCIT, which is basically a historical lesson on how we got here. Talking about Dorothea Dix, talking about how uh, the dark history of psychology in America um, how we used to allow people to pay money to go watch the freak shows of people that were institutionalized. So we talk about the dark history of it very first, and then we get into the skills. Then Tuesday, it's all about mental health. They learn about mood disorders, schizophrenia, schizoaffective, personality disorders. Um, they're, they're learning about drugs and co-occurring issues, substance use issues. Then Wednesday is more about like adolescent mental health, um, the developing brain. Uh, we talk about um, more on the personality disorders on Wednesday as well. And then they get a class on suicide, uh, suicide intervention, but not just suicide in the community. We also talk about police suicide, which is a huge problem. Uh, and it's actually part of my why. And we'll talk about that more later. And then Thursday, we call advanced public safety classes. That's where we're going to teach them about 
uh, threat assessments and how it ties into the mental health community. We're going to teach them about what was formerly known as excited delirium syndrome. And I know that now there's a lot of debate because of George Floyd, where doctors are pulling back saying excited delirium syndrome is no longer a thing. Uh, but again, there's a lot of debate on it. And uh, we also talk about ACEs, which is the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study, uh, and how that plays a role in our communities. Um, and, and then we end Thursday with a lived experiences panel, which is always super powerful. And we bring people in the community that have mental health issues that are stable and in treatment. And uh, it's, it's some of the most transformational and powerful experiences, because what I tell the officers is, when you think of mental health, you think of like these horrible calls you've had where things have gone poorly. But I want you to see what the other side of treatment looks like and how we can be an advocate and a proponent for people getting into treatment. And so when they get to interact with members of their community that are now stable, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing of these two groups coming together. And, and then Friday is all about local resources, where they can take people, the hospital groups come in, it's wherever the placement facilities will be. Um, and then always our last class is a wellness and resiliency class because what I tell them is at the end of the day, you are the most important part of this system. We have to make sure we're doing a better job taking care of ourselves. And uh, in our training, uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday, everybody is forced to do scenarios, role plays. And that way we're not just talking at them all day, but we're actually reinforcing the skills that we've given them. And we do the role plays because through learning theory and we know how to reward and how to punish based on what they're doing. And so we control the environment. And it's just such a profound experience to send these people through these um, and, and see how they transform and how they develop their skills right, right in front of you. And they start to feel very confident in, in doing it. And, and then that's it. They're certified. And, and then we require a refresher after like three years now. But uh, that's the 40-hour CIT training. That's our model. There are tr there are CIT trainings out there that do no role-play training at all. There are some that only do one day of role-playing. There are some that hire actors to come in and act out these different mental health situations, which we used to do, and I'm not a fan of because they're not mental health experts. They're acting away, but they don't know when to reward the learner or when to escalate because they're doing something we taught them not to do. And so because they don't understand the content, it's very hard for them to reinforce the skills. And we've tried it many ways. We tried trainings for them. It just became exhausting and frustrating. And they didn't understand the concept of it other than just act out mental health, um, which can also perpetuate stigma sometimes too. And so we've got to be very mindful because we are a company that works very hard to destigmatize uh, mental health. Uh, and so, yeah, you know, it's it's been really, really good. And that's just one of the six or seven different training deliverables that we offer as a company. That's a lot. Um, you will will pivot. Uh, well, there's one there's one quote I, I heard you uh, mention in some of the interviews I watched that there was an, a scene from an avatar. I have never seen the movie Avatar, but the, a very important theme or mantra of yours or motto is like this whole, I see you when you're responding to these people that if you want to talk about that just for a minute and then we'll pivot. And because you, you brought up the uh, self-care for the police officers, that's a whole nother topic because um, in, in Los Angeles, I, well, 
I, I, I just see this on the news a lot. I don't have any law enforcement in my family. I don't have any friends that are in law enforcement. And I know I was kind of shocked that just in the last few weeks, there was a it was reported that four Los Angeles sheriff department uh, sheriff officers killed themselves in like a 48 hour period. And it was unrelated. Um, and then one of the wives just filed a lawsuit last week and uh, a $20 million lawsuit against the sheriff department because apparently her husband was working in the prison system and had for 12 years. And it was like these 80 hundred hour work weeks and mandatory overtime. So she feels very strongly that that contributed, but I, yeah, let's just talk about all, all of that. But I'd like to hear about the whole motto, your, your motto of like, we see you, I see you. Yeah, so it it does come from Avatar and that um, because you haven't seen it, I'll assume other people haven't as well, but they have these tails essentially and they would plug them into each other and you would see this like physical transference of energy and that's how they would greet each other and they would say, oh. I see you and uh, instead of like, hey, how are you or hey, how you doing, you know, which is what we do in America, it's often trite, it's this like just passing, we miss opportunities People will say things like living the dream or everything's great or I'm good when really they're they're not. But there's no real opportunity to connect with one another. And so as a police officer, this idea of I see you, it's it's really about understanding the power of reciprocity. And it's not just, hey, I see you because I choose to. But it's like in Africa, they have these this saying of Ubuntu. And it's basically I am because we are. And if we understand that, like when I'm showing up on a call or even as leaders in business or whatever it is, no matter what your function is, even as a parent, when you're, when people do things, all human behavior is communication, all human behavior is communication. And so instead of getting distracted by people's behaviors, instead being curious about what's driving that behavior, again, there's a huge opportunity there. So when I tell someone, I see you, what I really mean is, Hey, because I've been willing to do the work myself and I know who I am. I see you and I invite you to also see me. And if we understand that just through evolution, right, our brains are still the same from back when we were cavemen. Our brains have not changed much, but we understand more about them now than ever before. And because we're wired to look for threats, right, the motivational triad is seek pleasure, avoid pain, conserve energy. And because we're always trying to look for the problem, look for the threat, look for the thing that could kill us or hurt us so we could stay alive, we're wired to look for differences. And knowing this, it's a, it, it, it requires intentionality, right? So when I meet someone, when I'm teaching someone, when I'm training someone, when I respond to someone, or when I'm parenting as a father, whatever I'm doing in my life, I try to understand that like, look, while I know my brain says, let's find what's different, I'm intentionally gonna look for what do we have in common? And not just physically outward looking, but what do we have in common inside? What is the story? What are their pain points? What are their traumas? Uh, what are their fears in life? Uh, what are the what's the thing that they're hiding and that they're most afraid for people to find out about? What's behind this proverbial mask, if you will? And that's where, again, as someone that was in hiding for most of my life, um, I've also been in treatment now for the last 14 years in some level on some capacity. So I've learned a lot about my own life, my own trauma, where I come from with not an ideal upbringing. But now I can see so much of myself and the people that I'm responding to that are hurting. And, uh, you know, and, and if we understand all behaviors, communication, it's like we have to stop assigning this idea that anything behaviorally is good, bad, right, wrong. Right. When Shakespeare said there's there is no such thing in life as good or bad. It's thinking about it that makes it so, especially in law enforcement, we show up thinking the world is black and white. 
there's a rule book saying everyone should follow these laws. And if you violate this law, then I have to enforce the law. And it's not that rigid. Human behavior is not that rigid. People are always going to do people things. If you have someone in the community that has a mental health issue and their behavior is to abuse substances, right away we look at that as that person is less than me or worse than me because they're using drugs. But if I truly did like a situational autopsy on your life, any officer or person out there that is enforcing these rules, I promise you I would find something that you're using to numb and avoid your pain and your suffering, whether it's Netflix or the gym or food or something that you're like, you do as your way to like numb and avoid and buffer. But just because the world as a whole says that's okay, but drugs is not, like who gets to decide? I tell people, don't forget legislation, laws are made up by legislators and legislators are human and human are flawed. And so there's going to be issues across the board. And so um, that's another component is like, I'm, I tell people, don't focus on the uh, problem, focus on the person. So that's another tenet of ICU is to be person focused, not problem focused. And I remind officers, especially if, if you respond to calls for help in the community and you find yourself becoming frustrated, it's because you've lost your, uh, you've forgotten your whole why. Because every cop, I venture to believe, gets into the job because they truly want to help people, but then they become frustrated by the very people they used to want to help. And when I ask why, all their excuses are external. And the reality is, internally, you changed. It has nothing to do with the community. It has nothing to do with the media. It has nothing to do with everything we blame. It's because you changed. And just as a friendly and very loving reminder, if you're miserable, if you no longer love it, then why are you going to wake up tomorrow and volunteer to do it again? There's a whole world out there. Go find another way to make money if you're so miserable, right? And, and we forget this, but it's two parts. Focus on the person, not the problem. And then the goal has to be connection before correction. If you're trying to correct someone's behavior, you have to have a connection established first. And um, I'm actually writing an entire book on this right now, Janice, which I'm happy to say will finally be out early next year, uh, hoping by February. But I'm, I'm going through these exact skills of understanding de-escalation, but how it really uh, weaves into our day-to-day -day lives as business leaders, as parents, as spouses, as friends, as community members, to hopefully equip anyone that reads it with the skills that they could then see people differently and not become annoyed or bothered by behavior, rather they could be curious by it. Because that's what drives me. It's like judgment-free to my core. It doesn't matter what someone's doing, drugs, houselessness, whatever it is, I know there's a reason behind that. And I also know that there's a really good chance there's a lot of unprocessed trauma behind that, which is a great segue into the second question you had about um, the officers in crisis themselves. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I'd love to hear some from someone who's been there and been in the trenches because I, I it's gut wrenching and heart wrenching to see this, and I it seems to be kind of happening everywhere. But the it was pretty shocking to see four officers sheriff. And I I feel you know I law enforcement over the years I've always I've thought to myself you know you couldn't pay me a hundred million dollars because of what they have to deal with all day to to be in I, law enforcement so sorry to be so but the, wow. I've often thought that so I'd like to and I I do remember I'll just mention one thing really quick because uh it was a few years ago I was at the I had just gotten to the gym my 24-hour novelist 
And I go in the locker room and all these women are like talking about a situation that had just happened. And I, I didn't see it, any of it. They, but, but after being in there and getting all riled up by all these other women, I went out and yelled at the police outside about, they had like, I don't think they tasered someone, but they had to use force against somebody acting crazy in the gym or, and um, I even went down and filed a complaint like at the police station and they, they were visibly upset. Like you didn't see what happened. And then when my mother called me like a little while later, you know, she was very upset and talked some sense into me. Like, what are you doing? You don't, you didn't see what happened. And even my biker brother who's been in trouble and had like for 30 years and many, many law, he called me. It's like, what, you have no idea what these police officers deal with. You don't know, go back there and recant. And then I was really, it was a humbling experience and embarrassed. I just got riled up in the moment. And I guess what people do when they see these things on TV, on the news at night, somebody going down or getting shot, they don't know what happened before. So let, but let's, I guess this, the, the, let's talk about factors that you think are contributing and what can be done. I, I've been curious, like what kind of help is available for all these sheriff and police officers and fire, what, what y'all see. Yeah. So, uh, and I appreciate you sharing that too. And, and, you know, there's, there's a whole, it's like a psychological phenomenon about this mob mentality. And again, not referring to you as a mobster, but it's just group thing, right? <laughs> it's it. like, I got caught when, up. when you see a group of passionate people around you and you get absorbed into it, you're like, oh yeah, I suddenly believe what they believe. And then your brain's like, yeah, I remember this video I saw. I have evidence to support this thing, but it's not that simple. Uh, it's way more nuanced. And I also appreciate you owning the fact, uh, Janice, that you you said like, yeah, I know I wouldn't want to do that job uh, because unless you are doing it, it's very hard for people to understand what's actually happening and what's at stake. And, you know, I'm very sad to report, I'm looking up the numbers right now, but uh, there's a phenomenal group called Blue Help uh, ran by Karen Solomon who tracks suicide numbers. And, and so far year to date this year, we've had 92 uh, suicides within law enforcement. And that number right now is actually down from last year's where we had 169. So that's progress. That's great. But it's still way too much, uh, in my opinion. And we also know that these numbers are conservative because what everything Karen does is self-reporting voluntary by the family or the agency. And so not everyone that dies by suicide is going to get into her database because Again, it has to be reported by a family member or the police agency. Now, here's my belief and the belief of Solution Point Plus. Um, my business partner, best friend, Jesse Trevino, who uh, was supposed to do a TEDx talk a couple years ago, was going to flesh this out, but COVID hit, shut it down. And uh, he he's a criminologist, uh, PhD in criminal justice. He's all but done with his dissertation. And uh, he's put a lot of his academic uh, focus into the criminology side of this. I've done a lot of work on the behavioral health, mental health, wellness, resiliency side of this. What we believe is when you see an officer doing something that is less than favorable, not smart, they've absolutely just lost their mind, they're yelling and screaming on a traffic stop, they're acting way out of line, being disrespectful, rude, unprofessional. They're using force, excessive force. And here's what you have to understand. There's a really good chance, especially in 2023, coming into 2024, that that officer is on body camera. They know they have a body camera. They probably have a car camera. 
There's probably a camera at some business somewhere recording them. There's probably people around with cell phone cameras. So everything they're doing is being recorded and yet they still lose their minds. Why? Police officers are human beings. We have to accept this. It's not a opinion, like cops are people. And when police officers lose their minds, what I tell people is it almost never, ever, ever has to do with the thing that's happening in that moment right in front of them. I promise you that there's an accumulation of problems and unprocessed trauma that is driving all of that. We can go all the way back to, and I'll use me as an example, because it is not hard to become a cop in America. The, the barrier to entry is very low, sadly. Uh, you just have to have maybe a high school diploma, no college, no life experience. In some states, you can be 18 years old. Um, you can have past drug use. They really want you to have a decent credit score. Like, it's not hard. Like, you just have to be a mediocre human to get in. Let's just call it what it is. Like, this isn't me, like, talking bad about the profession or the people in the profession, rather, but the the... The process to become an officer is just wrong. And it's sadly gotten even looser. The requirements have gotten even lower over the last five years or so because of all of the people leaving the profession. And it's getting harder and harder to staff a lot of agencies. And so the requirements have gotten even more loose, sadly. I had no business ever joining the Marine Corps. I had no business ever becoming a cop. Uh, when I was a seven-year-old child, uh, my parents were married and uh, my dad was in the Navy and he was deployed. My mom started having an affair and that guy started sexually abusing me. This goes on for a while and um, to the point where it disrupts everything in life. Um, at some point, my grandmother finds out about this and I'm doing like high-level cliff notes on this here, but um, in, in our trainings, I give the whole story and it really ties back to my why, but I just want to give high levels here. So childhood sexual abuse, a lot of childhood physical abuse, left home around 15-ish, started living with friends, coming back here and there. I become a father at 17, my senior year of high school. The Marine Corps recruiter scoops in, is like, hey, we'll take care of your daughter. Now this is in, this is in uh, 2000, pre-9-11. Guarantees me an easy job in the Northeast, never to deploy. I got stationed in Southern California, in Camp Pendleton, in an infantry unit, and I deployed a lot. Um, 9-11 happens. I find myself as a 19-year-old in Iraq. Oh, I, I will never be, um, well, I went to Afghanistan uh, first and then Iraq. And I'll never be the, because uh, I am combat decorated Marine, and I'll never be a combat decorated veteran that's going to stand in front of anyone playing the hero card. Uh, I will admit the first time I was in a real firefight, the first time I shot another human and saw them go down, I broke. Uh, I died inside. I, I hated it. I didn't like it. There was nothing fun about it. It wasn't something in the fact that I got celebrated for doing it really messed with me also. Um, and so I got out of the Marine Corps because I was tired of being surrounded by death and destruction and chaos. And then it was like, well, I'm 22. I don't have a college degree. I don't really have any skills. I spent my entire adult life so far in the Marine Corps, mostly deployed. I guess I'll go be a cop. Like you, you can get in pretty easy. You just got to pass the test, be in good physical shape and pass an MMPI, which is not a great psychological standard for testing. Uh, because as a 22 year old man, I also was not wetting my bed or burning cats or doing weird things so like a sociopath. And so it was like, yeah, you can now be a police officer. And 364 days into my policing career, 
Uh, I fight a guy, seven and a half minutes, no cover. People weren't there uh, as far as other police officers. He was on a lot of cocaine. And just from basically doing Brazilian jiu-jitsu, rolling, nothing came off my gun belt, no taser, no pepper spray, no baton, no gun, just rolling around for seven and a half minutes trying to control him. As soon as the other officer showed up and we handcuffed him, he died. So I have an in-custody death. That broke me again. Like now I'm the second rock bottom, third rock bottom, and yeah, I'm a police officer. I had no business dealing. I, I had no skills to deal with the psychological component of policing, of seeing children being sexually abused when I hadn't really even dealt with my own, of seeing domestic violence when I grew up in a house where there was a lot of domestic violence. Of course, I'm bringing all of my previous stories and fear into these calls. I know I'm not the best person to handle these situations. And so now that I focus a lot of my energy on treatment and healing and processing all the stuff that happened to me, it's like, man, like it made it so much harder for me to deal with the job because of who I was and what I brought to it. And that's why introspection for us is so important now is I guarantee you when an officer is losing their mind, making poor choices, doing things they should not be doing, they have unprocessed trauma somewhere. It could have been yesterday. It could have been 20 years ago. It could have been 30 years ago. But if they don't deal with it, it doesn't go away. It never just dissipates and vanishes away. It lives within you, right? The body keeps the score is the great book that references the stuff. And understanding that those traumatic situations plant splinters into us. And then the world around us are going to prick those splinters. Well, cops, and, and I tell officers too, just because you come into the job, maybe with a beautiful ideal childhood, doesn't mean the job's not going to mess you up. Right. And Jesse does a great job teaching this when he teaches the PTSD component of policing, talking about how the job is going to impact you. And even to the point you brought up, Janice, where you didn't witness the behavior, but listening to the girls talk about it, that's vicarious trauma, secondary trauma. You're absorbing other people's emotional state, even though you weren't in it. But when you're around this all the time, like <laughs> it's it's extremely problematic. And so it's going to make you more irritable. Uh, way less patience, way less compassionate. And again, it's not an excuse to say that like they're not wrong. What they're doing sure is wrong and inappropriate, but we also need to do a far better job of supporting them previous to that, supporting them on the front end and stop being so reactive, waiting for there to be a problem and then saying, oh, we should probably do something about this. And sadly, that's the way we are a lot is reactive instead of proactive. Um, I guess that that's a all of that unresolved trauma. You feel that uh, so a lot of that is leading to so many of these police officers taking their own lives. And and Absolutely. what what kind of help is available for them? Like as far as benefits and you know, are they is there time off? Like when the when the, if you went in and said, hey, I think I'm I'm having a mental breakdown. Are they going to give you like a sabbatical or is it like? you need to be let go. How, how does that all go down? And I just would, I'm so curious what kind of help is available for them. Yeah. So good news, bad news. The good news is there is more help right now than there's ever been before. The bad news is it's never, ever, ever been out, been about resources. And I hope, I hope people have made it this far in the episode to listen to this. As the last two years on the police department, I was really focused heavily on doing officer wellness hospitalizing our own officers, trying to get them from not dying by suicide. Because we had three suicides within 18 months. 
Uh, that police department still, and I will tell you, the San Antonio Police Department has a lot of resources. We have three department psychologists. We have a 50-plus member peer support team. We have a full 20-plus member mental health unit. There are a lot of resources. And last year, 2022, they had five police officers kill themselves in one year. And so for people who are thinking it's resource-based have missed the point. I created a 90-minute wellness uh, training for in-service training back in 2020. It was one of the feathers in my cap before I left, and now I do it all over the country. We took that 90-minute training and turned it into a two-day training called X-Factor Mental Wellness and Resiliency. That 90-minute training on a Tuesday afternoon at the end of in-service training, I taught it from January to March, and then there was a break because of COVID. The academy shut down, opened back up at the end of June. And then when I resigned in September of 2020, so about seven months of teaching this one 90-minute course, 23 SAPD officers came up throughout those seven months and told me something to the effect of, Joe, you got me. I put my gun in my mouth this morning. I put my gun in my mouth last night. I put my gun in my mouth last week. I'm addicted to this. I drink 25 beers every day when I get off shift. I'm drunk all the time. I'm drunk right now. I'm addicted to pornography. I'm addicted to opiates. I'm like, you name it. And what I realized from doing that was, man, I wonder why they're struggling so much when we have all these resources. And it was so clear to me, and I believe this to be true everywhere. If the government came down, if 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 the government came down right now and said, hey, every police department, you get $100 million to build all the resources you want to build for your officers, would it get rid of suicide? The answer is no. Why? Because to exactly your profound question, Janice, is what is the process? What happens when? If I came in and said I need help, what would happen? It is different everywhere. It is not the same anywhere. Most departments do not have a policy at all. Most departments, it's based on who you are and your reputation. If I go in and say I need help, I'm, I'm feeling suicidal, are they going to take away my guns and my badge and put me on a desk? Who's going to know about this? How much privacy do I have? What does treatment look like? How are you going to support me in treatment? Am I still going to get paid if I need to do a 42-day inpatient stay at a place like Warrior's Heart or any of these other great facilities? Nobody knows. And when I do all the training I do, I ask them, especially on the wellness side, I'm like, do you have policy for this? Almost nobody. Some do. Yes, some do. But very, very few do. And for the ones that have policy, then my second question is, but how is it working? Because here's what I realized needs to happen. You can picture a Venn diagram. Two things have to come together in time and space for an officer to come forward and get help. Opportunity has to meet willingness. Willingness has to meet opportunity. See, all, all of our SAPD officers knew we have all these resources. But they it's weren't a lot, It's a lot them. more than I even imagined. I had no idea that, like you mentioned, therapist and this peer support team. I mean, that's amazing. Amazing. Well, it, you'd be amazed too, Janice, if you looked in your own backyard, because LAPD has a ton of resources, like really good resources. But to prove the point, they just had five. Well, that's LAPD, LASD. But still, that region, Los Angeles has incredible resources for officer wellness. And good. yet, there's still these suicides. Why? Because the culture, because there's not buy-in, because people don't trust the policy, because I heard what happened to the last guy or girl that got help, or because I just don't trust it, or because of the stigma, we're still dealing with people, right? And so uh, there's a lot of factors that tie into why people will not come forward and ask for help. And we have to be at the forefront of allowing or creating opportunities for them. It's why I'm such an advocate for mandatory therapy. 
that you shouldn't have a choice of whether or not you see a therapist as a first responder. Every cop in America has to shoot their gun every year to qualify, but it's really for liability and proficiency. And yet most will never pull the trigger in their whole career. Why why is it that we know for a fact an officer is going to respond to a traumatic incident every year, at least one? We know that the research shows that in a 20-year career, they're going to respond to 188 critical incidents. They're going to respond to four 400 to 600 traumatic calls. Um, wh- why are we not forcing them to process it? Why are we not forcing them to talk about it? Why are we not compelling them to do debriefings after these situations? You know, like the fire department, a lot of fire departments, after they have a rough call, they'll shut down and they do great jobs debriefing. Police officers don't do this. They don't have that luxury. And again, it's this really unfair expectation that we're going to remove the human from the officer. We're going to take the human, the soul out of that, the, the police officer. And we're just going to send a non-emotional bot to these calls. That's going to be unfazed and unaffected by the, the reality of the world that they see. And it's super unfair and unrealistic um, because we don't, re- we don't forget things. You know, I, I, I saw a lot in Iraq, but I even remember as a police officer, the first time I saw like a major motor vehicle fatality where there was a, a, a dead family, uh, decapitated arm, just crushed bodies. That doesn't just leave you, right? The first time I saw a person jump off a bridge and die when they hit the street, that doesn't leave you. And so, yeah, it starts to kind of like chip away at the armor, chip away at like the, the goodness of humanity, chip away at your soul and the hope that you had getting into the profession. And you do this over and over and over and over. And it's like, yeah, I'm going to break eventually. Everybody would. And this, this, you know, thought out there that, you know, officers, they knew what they were getting into or they signed up for this. So they shouldn't be bothered by it is really, really, um, uh, it's, it's unfair. It's unfortunate that people feel this way, even within policing in leadership roles. I've, I've talked to some chiefs that feel like if I find out my men or women are, are, uh, out there struggling mentally, then I don't want them in my uniform. That's a real thing. Like, that's a problem. And those are the things that are going to prevent officers from coming forward and feeling encouraged to actually want to uh, ask for help or make an outcry. Well, thanks for bringing that up. Um, Isa, I, I was curious because one of the things this woman who's suing uh, the sheriff's department mentioned it there, it was like required that her husband for 12 years worked this crazy overtime schedule. Is that a common thing across the country? Or I always thought that like overtime is a voluntary thing, but it sounded pretty brutal. Yeah. No, it used to be voluntary. They call it Mando. It's mandatory overtime. And this is a huge problem within the Federal Bureau of Prisons as well. Uh, This is a huge problem within police departments. A lot of them are on mandatory overtime, especially in the jails. Um, One of our clients in Iowa just reached out for the same reason, because their people are suffering because they're short staffed. No one wants to do these jobs anymore. And so they're forcing people to work 16 hour shifts. It's what's happening in Chicago for, you know, for over a year, they're working 16 hour days, six, seven days a week. Some of them working like 50, 60, 70 days in a row without one day off. Like, what do you think that's going to do to the, to the psyche? What do you think that's going to do to someone's ability to be emotionally aware and present and available for people? It's, it's really unfortunate. So I do think what's really interesting about that case in LA, and I'll be very curious about the outcome of it, is you're going to see a lot more family members suing and holding the, the department and the city or county accountable 
uh, for not having enough people on staff. And I think there's going to be a couple people that are successful in their lawsuits, and it's going to create a trend where suddenly it's going to create this shift then in the pendulum to say, all right, we need to figure this out and start hiring more, which maybe would mean start paying more, which maybe would mean increasing the standard and getting, um, you know, higher qualified men and women to do this job. And instead of just seeing like whoever's available, come one, come all. I, and, and this is one of the things that I advocate for on a national level is if we want things to be very different than they are, and I think we all can agree that most of us do, for me, my whole mission is to eradicate suicide uh, in first responders. And so if I want to eradicate suicide, how are we going to do that? Well, we need to hire healthier people at the front end. Well, to hire healthier people, we have to raise the standard. Well, to raise the standard, we have to raise the money. Yes, yes, yes. But you get what you pay for. There are, there are some police officers in this country right now working a lot of overtime and still not making a livable wage. There, there, one of the people we hired was a sergeant in a big city, high crime rate. She's been an officer for over 20 years, and her take-home pay was like 30 grand as a sergeant in the United States of America. Like, you get what you pay for. So, yeah, raise the standards, raise the, raise the, uh, raise the requirements, raise the pay. Like, when you start the academy, what would it look like if everyone started at like $85,000, Depending on where you are, again, if you're in the Bay Area, we're going to put you at $150,000 to start. You're in LA, hell, all of California, you know, we're going to start you at like 125. That's a great livable wage that you're going to get a different caliber of person that's willing to go above and beyond and do the hard things. It's it's harder to expect people. Uh, you, you're expecting some like Louis Vuitton quality stuff shopping at Walmart, and it's just unfair uh, to expect those types of things. It's not going to happen. Well, thank you for your directness, and uh, <laughs> I, I I appreciate that. Um, well, it's I don't want to take up too much of your time. I am curious about a couple things, like how you, <laughs> you you mentioned that you're really happy that this was the best career change that you made starting this consulting. I'd like to know if like your life, because from what I saw from researching you, you know, you you did the mental health crisis unit, and then you worked a lot of overtime. You got five kids, you know, take care of. That's a lot of money, <laughs> so. Is life as a consultant, or are you more, does life feel more balanced or are you just as busy because starting a business and, and learning about it? Um, how, how is life now? And I'm so curious if you and the guy from the movie, like your partner of all those years, are you still in touch or do you do police drift or you, you kind of have the brotherhood and keep in touch with these fellas? Yeah. I, so I keep in touch with a couple people from the unit still. Uh, Ernie and I have not really kept in touch a lot. We're in very two very different tracks. Um, professionally, he he now works for the Council of State Governments, and uh, he's doing his own thing over there, uh, being employed by the government. Um, yeah, so I would say it's definitely, for me, it's, it's I'm very busy, but it's a very different busy. Uh, it's more of a desirable busy. Uh, I'm happier than I've ever been, for sure. The the business is going to be seven years old uh, in January of 24, right? So uh, it's not like it's new, but um, there's, and I enjoy learning, right? It's been, it's been great to go from just providing some CIT training in rural areas to now like having large corporate clients, government as a client, um, you know, to be a, a, an organization that financially is like, solvent and doing really well. And I've got 10 people that work uh, with me all over the country. We're doing 
work up in Canada. So um, exciting. it's been, it's been really, really exciting and rewarding. And honestly, all of that has been without any marketing. Uh, people assumed it was because of the documentary and I'm not being mean, but um, very few people have actually seen that documentary. <laughs> um, and because we show it in some of our training and I ask them who here has seen this documentary and maybe one out of a hundred people raise their hand. Uh, to your point, like you just watched it yesterday, right? So uh, yes, it is on HBO, but it's buried. It's not like it's promoted on their front tile. Uh, people, if you're in policing, because, and again, this isn't a slight, like the, the outreach team from Ernie and Joe Crisis Cops has done a phenomenal job. And there have been thousands and thousands of people that have watched it, but in policing, um, at in-service training, things like that, like a lot of cops have seen it, but uh, none of our clients are police departments. Uh, police departments claim to be broke. They don't have any money. And so we're very um, strategic in our pricing model and our in our business form. And uh, while the end user is oftentimes police agencies and, and law enforcement officers, they don't ever pay for our stuff. It's usually community uh, stakeholders, uh, mental health and disability services regions, hospitals, things like that. Uh, they're the ones paying us and it's been phenomenal. Um, what was your other question, Jay? Oh, so yeah, the-, the life, I just, Like is life more balanced? You get to be with no, your- I, I'm on the road 25 days a month. Oh, you are? Okay. For yeah, this so, job, okay. All right. Yeah, I, I am on the road a lot. and But again, I still enjoy it. I love doing the training. Um, I get a lot of flack from my mentor group that says, uh, you know, Joe, you spend too much time working in your business and not enough on the business. And I'm slowing the growth and all this stuff. And that's very true, but I just love it too much. I love being in front of a group of people, whether they're first responders, teachers, again, it doesn't matter, uh, social workers, clinicians, nurses. When I get to stand in front of a group of room and, and, and inspire them, teach them, educate, give them a different point of view, that's the thing that really drives me and sends me. And so uh, I don't see it as work at all. And, and then the benefits of it are, again, way better for me, like, from being a cop to being my own boss and uh, now having the financial liberties that I do has been really, really rewarding. And uh, I'm just super blessed to have great people around me and uh, to get to help the amount of people that we do. And uh, it's what the, the best advice I was told when I was leaving the department is because I had a hard time pricing things and I didn't understand the money of all business and stuff. But he told me, Joe, there's nothing wrong with doing good while doing good. And uh, I know we're offering a very good service that's helping a lot of people and I've also become more um, willing to accept the doing good that goes with that as well. So, uh, yeah, it's, I've been blessed. I'm super fortunate. And uh, I, again, all of this in the vein of trying to help people live through their darkest moments so that they don't make that fatal decision, which is going to uh, wreck and destroy their family and communities, people that love them and support them. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to join me at, on the show. We're hoping we have pitched to a couple networks. The goal of the podcast is to, we've been trying to pitch this as a, as a TV show. So hopefully this interview, that would be the dream on my end to, to be interviewing you in person and have you out here or come out there. Like well, the, we describe it as a 60 minutes of mental health. So that's yeah. the goal, like three segment. And, um, and you mentioned your book coming out next year. So I'll reach out again early yeah. next year and if you want to talk about your book i'd love to have you back you know have an, all right have a nice christmas and um good luck and i hope to see you again joe thank you so much Thanks. appreciate it Bye -bye.
Thanks, everybody, for joining us for another episode of American Mood Swings, where we talk about the brain and all things mental health. Hope to see you next week, and please share with your friends. 